Greetings in the name and the spirit of Jesus Christ as always. It's a privilege to open up God's word. And by the time this sermon goes live, if you can believe it, we will be one month and two days from welcoming 1,000 Hope College freshmen to town. So Pillarites, buckle up. What a remarkable gift to be in a location to love on so many college students during their four years to encourage and walk alongside and ultimately to point them to Jesus. To whom shall we go? That's the theme for summer preaching here at Pillar. And the question originally posed by Peter to Jesus where Peter goes on to answer his own question. He says this of Jesus, you have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So in the spirit of St. Peter, let's turn to the Psalms to help us get at the to whom shall we go question. But before we get into our text, listen to this from a favorite professor of mine, Ellen Davis. She writes this, honest, unguarded speaking is essential to the heart of family life or close friendship. But do we realize that the same thing applies to our relationship with God? That is what the Psalms are about, speaking our mind honestly and fully before God. The Psalms are a kind of First Amendment for the faithful. They guarantee us complete freedom of speech before God, and then something no secular constitution would ever do. They give us a detailed model of how to exercise that freedom, even up to its dangerous limits, to the very brink of rebellion. So the Psalms call for honest speech, but honesty is not everything in intimate relationship. We must also speak wisely. And if we attend to the Psalms patiently and deeply, they will teach us wisdom. So with the dual aim of honesty and wisdom in view, hear the word of the Lord from the book that we love. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tabernacle for the sun, and they go out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the earth, and its orbit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The 
testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, more are they to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, in keeping them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern their errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults? Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, the 19th Psalm, the one I just recited, suggests C.S. Lewis is the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in all the world. How is that for an opening statement? Psalm 19 is poetry in the sense that it is maximal speech in a few short, swift moves, the psalmist gets to the heart of things. Creation's praise for God, the law as a means of the grace of God, and the fundamental human longing to be in right relationship with God. So working with the grain of Psalm 19, that's the ground I'd like to cover this morning, that Creation proclaims the glory of God, that the law reveals the gift of God, and that we are made for relationship with God. So first, looking now at verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Well, it's more commonplace to focus on the human response to God in worship. Here, nature itself joins in on the chorus. The praise of creation comes in the form of wordless speech resounding throughout the heavens, bearing witness to the work and wisdom of God. The psalmist wrote John Calvin with the view of encouraging the faithful to contemplate the glory of God sets before them a mirror of it and the fabric of the heavens and in the exquisite order of their workmanship, which we behold. As soon as we acknowledge God to be the supreme architect, Kelvin concludes, our minds must necessarily be ravished with wonder at his infinite goodness, wisdom, and power. The principle is what Reformed theologians call general revelation akin to what the old Catholic masters called natural law, that humans made in the very image of God have the rational capacity and gifts to discern God the creator in his creation order. 
few weeks ago, I had the unbelievable opportunity to visit Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Maybe some of you have been there as well. Grand Teton Peaks and gushing waterfalls and mountain lakes clear as crystal. If you can believe it, these photos that you're seeing were taken with an iPhone. I didn't just swipe them off of Google Images. And then lo and behold, even managed to find the crown jewel of creation, a golf course right in the middle of it all. On the whole, being out west, we were absolutely ravished with wonder to hearken back to Kelvin's phrase. And really, everywhere we look, we can see why the psalmist has such gusto for nature. Creation itself proclaims the glory of God. The precedent established in the Psalms confirmed also in Romans chapter 1 by the Apostle Paul where he wrote God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in all that has been made. Now, nature, to be clear, is not the object of worship. It is, like humans and other creatures, a worshiping subject. So then, on a subtle but profound level, the psalmist also calls out the idolatry of those engaged in nature worship. In the world of Psalm 19, Israel's neighbors and the ancient Near East worship the sun as the god of justice. So contra paganism, the psalmist views the sun not as a god, but rather as an athlete set in motion by God, even rejoicing before God. Looking now at verse 5, the sun goes forth running its course with joy. I wonder if that's why there is such pleasure in the drama of athletes and artists performing at their peak. Because in some provisional way, the glory of God shines through them. That's why this year's Wimbledon final between the all-timer Djokovic and the ultra-talented up-and-comer Kyrgios was such a joy to watch two world-class athletes endowed with the gifts of God performing in a variety of ways with power, grace, and beauty. God has set a tabernacle for the sun, and it runs its course with joy. As the priest poet George Herbert said, if we could hear thy, if we could hear thy skill in art, what music would it be? So that's the first move of Psalm 19, that creation itself proclaims the glory of God. And then second, the law of the Lord reveals the gift of God, again from Kelvin. But as those surrounded with so clear a light, we are nevertheless blind. This splendid representation of the glory of God without the aid of the word would profit us nothing. Accordingly, God vouchsafed to those whom he has determined to call to salvation this special grace. 
in this case, Calvin using the law of the Lord and the word of God interchangeably, true, uh, true thread throughout the Reformed tradition. The aid of the word is the gift of God, that special grace which revives the soul and makes wise the simple and rejoices the heart and enlightens the eyes and endures forever and are righteous altogether. The law of the Lord, not only the Ten Commandments, but Torah, the whole complex legislation for Israel's common life, moral, ritual, and sacrificial found in Leviticus through Deuteronomy in the beginning of the Bible. Torah was the total harvest of thinking and feeling for the people of God, and it was the sign and seal of God's covenant loyalty in the exodus to the promised land and even through the dark days of the Babylonian exile. More are they to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. To use a phrase from my great friend Caleb Nykamp, the law of the Lord is sweeter than honey and better than money. Recently, I was with a group of friends relishing a summer night on a back deck and all the guys I was with are fathers of youngsters, so the inevitable and sometimes daunting topic of education came up. How to choose wisely for their children, public or private? What are the moral, intellectual, and social factors? How to equip children to face a secular culture? Just a sampling of the themes, all of which are absolutely fair concerns. And while there was plenty of argument and some civil disagreement, there was also a hope that we all held in common. And that is the local church's role in formation. Hence the promise we make to every family at baptism to love, encourage, and support them by teaching the gospel of God's grace, by being an example of Christian faith and character, and by showing them the strong support of God's family with prayer and in service with the church. And all of these promises are rooted in the gift of God's word, which is the beautiful inheritance of the people of God sweeter than honey and money and the way to wisdom. For in keeping them, the psalmist continues, there is great reward. Reward not in the sense of works righteousness as if we could merit our own salvation, not in that sense, and not in the sense of prosperity gospel that we'll be healthy and wealthy if we follow Jesus. Reward in the sense that is intrinsic to walking in God's good ways. Like the reward of enjoying a delicious meal is proper to all that chopping and dicing and preparing. A farmer's harvest, the result of the toilsome work of digging and tilling. The reward of learning a language, opening new worlds for literature, travel, hospitality, 
and friendship. Hopefully the point is clear by letting the word of God dwell in us richly there are new possibilities for the Spirit of God to open us to the unbought grace of life. The law of the Lord is the gift of God, sweeter than honey and money. And in keeping them, there is great reward. Which brings us to our final point, that we are made for relationship with God I wonder if you noticed how Psalm 19 moves seamlessly from creation's praise to the means of grace and ultimately to the way of redemption. The final move takes the form of personal prayer, of confession. Yes, creation is good, and yes, the law is a gift. And yet, what about the desires and devices of our own hearts? What about the things left undone? What about the times when we have not loved with our whole hearts and souls and strength? In this final move, we see an honest, personal confession, the gap between belief and behavior exposed, the laws beauty and goodness, a mark that we too often miss. Who can discern his errors, wonders the psalmist. The fact is that we are in desperate need of God to act and for God to redeem. And the psalmist knows the source, looking now at verse 14. But the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And thanks be to God, the rock and redeemer has a name, and his name is Jesus. He is the one who came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. The one whose once and for all sacrifice on the cross declares us righteous before God. Consider this final image from the Anglican priest, Austin Ferrer. He writes, My failures, foolishness, vanities, cowardices, these have been mine. Here are two angel recorders, and each of them shows me a scroll. On one is written the evil I have done and the attempted good I have misdone or scamped. It is quite enough for an hour's penitence. What can I do but read such a score and weep? Except that God's predestination has better things for me to do than weeping. He sets the good path at my feet and he gives me the grace to walk in it. But here is the other angel with his scroll. No, I say, take it away. I know I must read it on the day of judgment, but I will not read it now. Not now, not here in this world, the vision of all those good things God predestined me to have done, and I did not do them. The men unhelped, the prayers unsaid, the sadness uncomforted, the sin unrebuked. No, not in this life, says the mercy of God. And on the day I show it to you, I also will show you my face and the thorns on my head 
and the wounds in my hands. We are made for relationship with God and in Christ alone, by grace alone, Jesus makes the way, Jesus is the way. Creation's praise opens our eyes. The law's gift opens our hearts. And Jesus, as he did at Calvary, opens up his arms. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. And at the table, the Lord's table, he meets us, the rock and redeemer, to offer grace upon grace in his body offered for us and his blood in the new covenant offered for the forgiveness of sins. If you believe in Jesus Christ and acknowledge him as Savior, you are welcome to partake of the Lord's body and of the cup in this manner. And if you're not at that place in life or in faith, we are so grateful that you joined us this morning. You're welcome to consider the things that you've heard. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come for all things are ready.